0: Our scripture reading this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 1 to 43. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The Rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children, because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your Father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will teach you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with him. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of a rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of bashan and goat, with the very finest of the wheat, and huge drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people, I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them, I will spend my arrows on them, they shall be wasted with hunger, and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them, and the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors a sword shall be reeve, and indoors terror for young men and women alike, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces, I will wipe them from human memory, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries shall misunderstand, lest they should say, Our hand is triumphant, it was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and and two have put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah Their grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy." Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, would you please join with me in prayer. Father, uh, you give us um, all sorts of things in your word, some some passages that are easier to hear, some uh, that are harder and are even at times confusing, yet all of it is good, and um, all of it is for our good. So now, Lord, we ask for your help, that you would help me uh, to speak faithfully and clearly, that you'd help us. Uh, to hear you, um, so that you might give us life and draw us nearer to you. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I find um, every four years I come up against the painful truth repeatedly, and that is that I just don't like soccer. Like, every time we get to the World Cup, um, I try, I mean, Liam and Ty Hoving, Liam Owens and Ty Hoving, yet last week gave me a tutorial, it was amazing, I understood way much more, and still, I'm not able to appreciate the, the beauty of a game that ends zero to zero. I guess nil-nil, that's what you're supposed to say, I think. But I am interested in it. It's an interesting phenomenon. Like the whole world is coming together, and different things happen that I think are interesting. Like one of the things that I, one of the news items that I found interesting. And this has very little to do with soccer, but that Iran, their first game at least, when their national anthem was played, all of the team refused to sing. And of course, normally not singing a song is not that big of a deal. But this was something. This was them taking a stance. It was so important, actually, that apparently in, in subsequent games, they were pressured by their government to make sure that at least they were mouthing the words because, well, because the national anthem is a symbol, right? It is, it is an expression of kind of a national identity, a, a sense of, of who you are as a nation. I think almost every country has some sort of national anthem. I was looking this up this week. It's interesting how different songs kind of express identity. So Japan's national anthem sings, May your reign continue until the tiny pebbles grow into massive boulders lush with moss, which for some reason feels very Japanese to me. Um, Russia, typical Russian fashion, sings, Be glorified, our fatherland. We are proud of you. Um, England, you probably know, is a prayer, God save the king, ours, of course, is this song that is kind of singing about the resilience of our nation in the face of battle, but, but each national anthem in some ways is an expression of kind of the nation's sense of self, it's, it's pride, it's, it's hope for the future, which is why this, what we just read, is one of the strangest national anthems you will ever come across. Because that's actually what this is. If we had a chance, I mean, I know the passage felt long, but we could have included chapter 31. Because 31 introduces it. And and there, God says, Moses, you're about to die. And I'm going to give you, you know, make sure you have this law. And here's Joshua, the leader. And the third thing I want you to do is to teach Israel this song and they are to sing it again and again it's a song about themselves it's a song about who they are have them repeat it and learn it by heart and apparently even by the time of jesus there's some um, evidence that every sabbath in the temple part of this song this i suppose you could call it this national anthem was sung by the people of israel but it's not about stars and you know like and and bombs in the air and the, hand, the land of the free and the, the home of the brave. This is this is dark. I mean if you're listening it is a song about failure, a song about judgment, a song that is basically declaring, "Hey, there is something seriously wrong with us." But as dark as it is, it's not just given to kind of bring their self-esteem down. There is There's a gift in this song. God is giving this to them for their good. And actually, I would suggest that if we listen, even though this is not our national anthem, it declares something to us that helps us see something important. And I think at the end, what we will see is what this song is meaning to tell us is that for us to be able to see God truly, we need to tell our own story truthfully. For us to be able to see God truly, we need to be able to tell our own story truthfully. I'll try to help us to see that, and I'm going to do something rebellious. Rather than three, I will use four points today, but three of them will be short. The third one's the one that we'll spend a lot of time on, but but the first thing then, the first one I, I want us to notice is really what this song is intended to do. At the very beginning, we see that even though there is, and by the way, if you don't have it open, I invite you to have it open because we will, we'll not touch on every verse, not surprisingly, but we will talk about a lot of it. It'll be easier if you see it with me. So, at the very beginning, we see kind of the intent, the goal of this song, where, where verse two, there's this prayer, may my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass. In, in Israel... In that area, it's 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 dry, it's arid, right? And so, so water is life-giving. Every, every plant longs for whether it's dew or rain. And and that is what this song is meant. It's meant to be life-giving, to, to, to kind of nourish and cause to flourish the life that of those who hear it. And how is it to be life-giving? Well, we see that in verse three, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. The name of the Lord is not literally just his name. It's talking about who he is. And verse 4 then tells us what we're supposed to understand. He is the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. If we if we go to the very end of the psalm, right near the very end, you see this climax where it says, Look, I, yes, I, I am He, I am your God. And and the very conclusion of this song is joy. So, so the first thing that we're meant to understand is that the, the purpose of the song is to give a life-giving understanding of God. Th- that is the effect this is to have, to lead its hearers to be nourished, to be strengthened by seeing God most clearly. Because that is where life is to be found. If you are familiar with our church's tradition, the, the catechism that's part of our church's tradition, asks, what is the chief end of man? That is, what is the human life about? And the answer is, it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Which we could say, it's to know God and to help other people know Him. That's what life is for. And the, when we're trying to understand what wisdom is, the, the wisdom writers in the Old Testament says, here's how you know wisdom. Fear God. That's where it begins. When we're trying to understand how our desires can be satisfied, the artists of the Old Testament, the psalm writers say, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing I desire besides you, God. It's to know you. Jesus, when he is praying right before he goes to the cross, he says it simply. He says, this is eternal life, to know you, God. We we can complicate, we can confuse. The Life has a lot to it, but at the very heart, life is found in knowing God knowing Him more deeply. That's how we flourish, and that's that's what the song is meant to do. It is meant to help us to come to know God more fully. And the second thing that I want us to notice is how, and that is this song seeks to do this through story. You might think that if this is a song that's meant to help us to know things about God, that it would be a song that just kind of kind of gives us facts. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. These are details about God. And yes, there's some of that. We saw that in verse 5, that God is this rock who is faithful. But if you look at it, it's not just a series of facts. As, As this song leads us to know God, it does that through telling a very extended story. And the reason for that is that that's how we understand things. Facts on their own, mean almost nothing to us until we can fit them into the story of how we understand what's going on, the story of our lives. There's this uh, philosopher, Alistair McIntyre, who illustrated this point of how, as he says it, we are story-making creatures. That's how we understand. He said, imagine you are, say, say, imagine you are at the train station, a metro station. You're w- wait, waiting for your train, and um, someone comes up to you that you've never met before and says, a wild duck's real name is Histrionicus, Histrionicus." Now that is a, tr- a, a true fact, and, and actually that sentence makes complete sense, right? We, we, we understand what it's meaning, but we have no clue what's going on there, right? Like, what's the story? If we were to keep on watching and this guy just kept on like murmuring it again and again, Histrionicus, Histrionicus, we'd realize, okay, the story is he has a mental illness. Or, or, or maybe, maybe he's a spy. And this is the secret password, and you're supposed to say something really cool in response. Or or maybe he actually saw you, and you look just like the person yesterday who happened to ask him, do you know what the actual technical term for a wild duck is? The, The thing is that the fact by itself needs context. For us to understand a detail, we need to understand the story, Right? And that's true for everything. I mean, I can tell you something like God is good. We are sinful. And those are true statements, but they will not mean anything to us until we unpack them and how they fit to story. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why sometimes it can feel like things that you know should matter to you just feel cold because until you move from a fact into story, it will not actually affect you. We are people whose whole lives are constructed around an idea of what our happily ever after is and who we are and what we're facing right now and a sense of whether what we're facing right now will overcome us or whether we'll be able to get to that happily ever after. We are storytelling creatures and to understand anything we need to fit it into a story. And so, it's worth noticing that as as God gives this song to help people to understand Him, He gives them a story. And the thing, one of the strange things about this story is it's not a story of their past, it's a story of their future. If If you look at it, what God is saying is, I want you to have this song because things are going to happen to you. And I want it to be that when those things happen to you, you understand the story of what's actually taking place. So, all of this is speaking about stuff in the future to help them as they experience it to be able to tell the right story of what's going on. Because that's what's important. I mean, if, if you understand the Christian faith at all, you realize that at the very heart of what we are is a story. The gospel is a story explaining both where things have been and where things are going. For us to be whole, for us to know God rightly, we need to be able to tell our stories rightly. And that's what this song is meant to help us with. So that's the second point. The third point, and this is the one that I want us to spend especially a long period of time because it's really kind of trying to figure out what is going on in the story. Is that what we see here in this song is that for us to see God truly, we need to be honest about our story. Uh, we've already mentioned this, this story is not a particularly uh, cheerful one. It, it's one that ends up speaking about Israel's failure, how they deserve the judgment that they're going to experience, and how it speaks about something really dark about themselves. And the way the story is told is, is really focusing on kind of a, a key metaphor, and that is the metaphor of, of parenting. Um, so perhaps you might notice it. It's, it's kind of at the, the beginning and end of this, the part of the story of Israel itself. So verse 6, notice how God is spoken of. He is your father who created you, who made and established you. And then when we get to the other end of this portion, verse 18, you are unmindful of the rock that bore you. That's mother language who forgot the God who gave you birth. So, so God is described here as both the father and your mother. And, and in between, we are being told just what kind of parent God is. So so it begins with with Israel in their current state the state they are in right now but looking backwards from the future standpoint when you were in the wilderness God your father encircled you it says verse 10 he was he was like a a wall where he was constantly on the lookout for any threats animals enemies he was taking care of you like a father takes care and meanwhile also you were the the apple of his eye that literally means is your the pupil of his eye, like a mother who always knows what their child needs before the child even asks. God was paying attention to every detail, making sure that your clothes were okay, making sure that your food was enough. He was caring for you. And then we have this image in verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, a a mother eagle. The, The image here most people suggest is is when an eagle is trying to get its baby chicks to start learning to fly. It kind of like pushes them out of the nest. And, and then they, they begin to kind of spread their wings. And, and that's what happens with God. God says, all right, it's time to go into this land. I know it's scary, but I'm going to be with you. And just like when the eagle eaglet starts kind of falling, the eagle picks them up. So also it says, when these things happened, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, God was always there whenever Israel was going to fall to, to pick them up. And then after he brings them into the land, you can imagine if we kind of extend the image of it being like you know like a, a kid getting their first house and it's a fixer-upper and dad is there like putting, you know, like putting in the wood floor, putting the fences on the outside, getting everything ready. God sets everything up. He makes sure that there's place for your sheep. He, he even sets up good things like the ability of honey and, and a vineyard so that you can have wine. This is the perfect parent, A parent who in every detail shows just how deeply he loves his son. And yet, then we see a tragic turn. But Jeshurun, which is, you might say, God's pet name, nickname for his son. It literally means the upright one. I suspect it. it's to express God's longing for what his son will become, but that is not what his son becomes. Jeshurun grew fat, fat on the very good things that his parents gave him, grew fat and kicked. He rejected his parents. To continue the metaphor, we can imagine that, you know, like as he gets older, he, he no longer ever shows up for family meals, When he sees his father in the city square, he ignores him as if he doesn't know him. And when he's talking with his friends about his parents, he just, he mocks them. He abandons them. That story already, I think, probably, if we kind of tried to imagine it, we already sensed the wrongness of this. But you need to understand that in that day, family was everything. Children who grew up understood how deeply indebted they were to their parents. There was this deep sense of responsibility to care for parents, a deep sense of the need to honor parents. That's that's kind of what gave you identity. And so in this story, for this to happen, this is unthinkable. And, And it sets us up for the response, the response that is absolutely clearly warranted, where, where God will respond in the moment of judgment. But before that, God explains how it is, why it is that he can use this metaphor. Here's what actually is going to happen. Verse 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. They turned from their God, and instead of just, it wasn't that there was this other greater God or or someone who was able to do these beautiful things or good things some impressive god no israel turns aside to demons they end up costing them so much, they have to even sacrifice their children in service of these false gods. And, and not only are they demons, they're gods they've never known. God, the true God, was the one who brought them out of Egypt, the one who brought them through the wilderness. He has shown himself again and again to be the God who loves them. But the moment things are okay, they look around and decide to go somewhere else and, and go after someone that has shown no faithfulness to them. And meanwhile, Israel forgets the God who has loved them and has promised himself to them and has been in covenant with him. So, so, the outcome, the, the, the necessary, the righteous outcome is, is absolutely clear. It is, if you are hearing this song, you know what God should do, and that's what we see. The Lord saw it, verse 19. Verse 20, He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. In anger, I will break off my relationship With his people who have rejected me, and they will experience what it's like to be without their God. And if we continue on, when we see verse 23, we see what that experience is like. All of the broken things in this world that God was protecting them against are now going to invade them the sickness, the animals, the warfare, everything they will experience. And it will be awful, and it will be deserved. That's where this song goes. This is, oh, say, can you see that you're all going to fail. That's the song that's happening here. And we wonder, why? Why would they sing this song? It's because God knows that they need it. Because he says in chapter 31, here's what's going to happen. These things are going to happen, he tells Moses. They are going to turn away from me and I will judge them. And when they experience bad things, here is the story they're going to tell. They're going to say, God failed. God is faithless. It's God's fault. He decided just to kind of give up on us. They're gonna be telling a story that's a lie. In essence, we might say that what they will do in that moment when they experience the consequences of their action is what some people have referred to as deflection. Perhaps you're familiar with that. Sometimes it's talking about uh, in, in psychological fields. One, one person's definition of deflection is a defense mechanism that is designed to preserve self-concept by deflecting blame onto someone else. We feel we cannot take responsibility for something and feel positive about ourselves at the same time. God is anticipating in chapter 31, that's, that's what's going to happen, that when they get to this point it's going to be so hard for them to see what they've done that the simplest thing will be for them to turn the story onto me. I mean, we understand how that deflection works, don't we? I mean, we see it all the time. Like a kid starts spilling his milk, and what does he say? A stupid cup," or, or like someone who has a problem with just being kind of cutting and insensitive in their humor, rather than acknowledge he has a problem, like, boy, everyone is just so sensitive today. We understand that tendency because what what the alternative is is to acknowledge that maybe that there's something that we have done wrong or even even worse to say there's something wrong with us that there's something about us that isn't right and that that idea of the guilt or the shame is so threatening that it is it's just so much easier to just kind of place the blame somewhere else to deflect and and we can understand if we think about it that that is why Israel decides to say God is the one, it's his fault. Because what would it say about Israel if they were this story? What would it say about them if they are a people who were given everything by a, a father who loved them perfectly and they just threw it all away and treated him like junk? It wouldn't just be saying that they did something wrong it would be saying that they are something wrong, that there is something wrong inside them. And that is actually what this song is explicitly saying. Back in verse 5, it says, they are a crooked and twisted generation. There is something that is bent inside of them. Or, Or verse 20, he will say, They are a perverse generation. The idea is that they are a corruption from what they are meant to be, children in whom is no faithfulness. In other words, there is something constitutionally wrong. There is something inside this people that seems to resist being able to receive the love of the God who made them that when they get to a place where they have the opportunity, even though everything that makes sense would be for them to show love to God, there's something in them that turns away and goes somewhere else, no matter how destructive it is. We can see why they would want to move that away from their thinking. We can see why, I think, because if we're really honest in this moment, we should recognize that same thing is inside of us. Scripture is not ambiguous about this. It speaks of how in in each human heart there is this bentness, this sinfulness, this tendency to turn away from the God, the God who made us. I mean, everything we have comes from God, right? We look outside, we see the beauty. That comes from God. We breathe. That air comes from God. Our very ability to breathe comes from God. All of life is a gift from God. And yet, there's something twisted in us that causes us to keep wanting to move away. Rather, rather than believing God when God tells us things, we, we find ourselves being more influenced by just kind of conventional wisdom. Rather than, than, than being dependent upon God prayerfully, we, would, we feel ourselves wanting to move away and be independent and forget about God. Rather than offering ourselves to the God who loves us in return, we seek to offer ourselves to, to work, to success. relationships none of it makes sense. And yet again and again, we see that in ourselves if we just are willing to look. And at certain moments, I think we recognize that there is a problem. But often, I suspect we do similar things to what Israel does. We deflect. You know, it's not my fault that I don't believe in God. If God really wants me to believe in Him, He would make it easier for me to see that He's real. We're saying this, of course, of the God who literally became one of us to make himself known. You know, it's not my fault that I'm not always doing what God says. God has these unrealistic expectations. He doesn't know what it's like to be one of us, except he does, of course, and every word he gives is for our good. It's not my fault that I don't trust that God loves me. I mean, life is so hard, even though God entered into the hardness of our life and gave everything for again and again. We probably don't use that exact phrase in our head, but again and again, if we are honest, there are times where rather than having to face the truth about ourself, we push the reality off onto God. And there's a couple problems with this. One of them, of course, is just it's never a good thing to live in denial. It's never a good thing to, to hide truth from our own eyes. But perhaps the even deeper issue is that as we do this, as we have this tendency, all it does is it blocks our view from who God is. Every time we move things off of ourselves to God, we keep ourselves from seeing just how good, just how faithful, just how beautiful God is. Because He is the object of all of our junk. This is why God gives them this song. He is saying, I don't want you to get confused. I don't want you to be turned from me. I want you in this moment where things are dark to see, to understand what's going on, and to see who I am. This, by the way, is is why we as a tradition, a church tradition, have this practice of of regularly confessing our sins. It's not because we think it's better to just kind of berate ourselves and feel miserable. It's because we don't want to live a lie, because we know that moving into truth is what allows us to see what we need to see. Now, there's one more piece of this. As I said, there are our four points, we've we've talked about how for us to see God truly, we need to tell our own stories honestly. But there's another element that we can only spend a little time on, but we'll be talking about more next week as Nick preaches, and that is not only do we need to tell our stories honestly, but we need to tell our stories completely. That is, we need to make sure that we know the whole story. Because as dark as this song is, There is a hope that is introduced near the very end. In in verses uh, 26 to 35, there is this moment of deliberation where God says, this is what they would have deserved. They deserve to be destroyed, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because if I did that, my name would be misunderstood, and people would would not recognize who I am, and that would not be good for the world, and I would hate that. And so, what does he do in verse 36? He says, here's what I'm going to do instead. He says, the Lord will vindicate His people. And that word vindicate literally means make right, bring justice to, and have compassion on His servants. The end will not be judgment. The end is going to be mercy. But it's an interesting and strange kind of mercy because notice what he does right after. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, then he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. This is not what it sounds like. It's not just a cruelty of God. This is God, as people are being brought to a place of complete weakness, where all of the facades are torn away, all of the self-deception is removed, God is saying, do you see? Do you see now? They're not God's. Do you see now how that was a dead end? Do you see, as he says next, see now that I... Even I am He, that I am your God. That, though it sounds severe, is the greatest mercy that God can give to His people to bring them to the place where they've brought through all deception and they come to see God again and taste His mercy again and be made whole. And that is the promise that concludes this, that somehow God's people will be brought through being humbled. Somehow they will be brought through failure. Somehow they will experience a kind of death. But on the other side, there will be life. And in the meanwhile, this song invites them to be humbled, to see themselves truthfully, and to be hopeful as they wait on the God who is good. And so it is a song, isn't it, that is appropriate as appropriate for Advent, as we are in a season of of waiting. But that's not just what Advent is about. Advent is not just about waiting, but it's about remembering that the God who promises is the God who fulfills. What he said would happen here, we know will happen 2,000 years later when Jesus comes into this earth, and, and you know the people who are ready for him, the people who are able to receive, they're not the ones who somehow have maintained a facade of perfection. They're the ones who have been brought low and recognize just how great their need is of him. He is, as it says in Luke, a friend of sinners, the ones who recognize just how much there is a problem inside. He comes and he says, I will forgive you and I will make you whole. And that is the promise that he says to us. God has given Jesus to this world, to people like us in whom there is something wrong. So he can make us right. So he can make us right with God, forgiven by him. And so that he can bring us to the one that we most deeply need.